welcome to Turn the Page, the official podcast of the Syosset Public Library. Syosset Libraries Turn the Page podcast. Um, I am Jessica and I am here with Barbara Borland. And we are going to talk about a really interesting book called The Force of Such Beauty. And I'm going to just kind of let you describe it because it's difficult to sort of sum up. There's so much going on in this book. Sure thing. Um, So the force of such beauty is the story of a retired athlete who marries the prince of a tiny uh, money hoarding European nation. And um, it is a fairy tale. It is um, absolutely a classic fairy tale. It is the story of a young woman who um, winds up trading her reproductive future to a government in order to receive some kind of security. And um, it has all of the kind of classic elements of a of a fairy tale. It has a little bit of magic, um, nothing that I'd go so far as to categorize as supernatural, but there's a little bit of a haze to it. Um, and uh, yeah, and I don't want to spoil the plot for anyone, but it opens with her um, attempting to escape and failing to do so. And from there, she goes on to sort of reevaluate all of the things that had led her to that. Okay, so one thing I found interesting you know of course we have like the modern um regular girls marrying princes that we know of you know uh Kate and Meghan Markle who have had different experiences although I'm sure Kate's experiences are also pretty terrible like being you know like paraded out right after she had a kid um, yeah seven then, hours yeah and uh, all, all of just the racism and criticism that Meghan Markle gets. Uh, we all know about poor Princess Diana. Um, I was just about to leave for college the day, the night that she died. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, Grace Kelly as well. I mean, throughout history, you know, even though Disney is, and I'm sorry, Disney, I know you're not the, you're not the only one, but you certainly, um, sold this fairy tale in you know many many ways to people you know regular girl marries into royalty happily ever after it's not really like that there's so much more to it um and what i found interesting first is uh there is an actual athlete who did marry into royalty who you had sort of um as an inspiration for caro uh so could you please tell us about that Sure thing. So, um, and she's an inspiration in in truly the most inspirational of ways. I don't know that much about her as a person at all, and I um, I'm not trying to make fun of her. You know, she's a real person trapped in what seems like an incredibly tragic situation. But Charlene Whitstock was an Olympic swimmer for the South Africa relay team, um, and she's originally from Zimbabwe. And uh, she dated Prince Monaco uh, or Prince Albert of Monaco for like eight or nine years before they got married. And when they did get married, it's there are many photographs of it. She sobbed throughout the entire wedding and has, um, I think, clearly been uh, really unhappy because it, it, it has to be awful to go from being an Olympic athlete, which is what I think of as kind of the pinnacle of sort of physical independence um, to to waking up every morning and your only job is to put on a dress and smile. 
And that seems like such a spectacular tragedy. And I, uh, yeah, I, you know, she's, she's still there. They have kids. She still lives there. And like I said, she dated him for eight or nine years, which is not what happens in the book. So, you know, it's hard, it's hard to know uh, what went on in their relationship and why she chose that. But I think, uh, you know, that the story of all fairy tales is that um, the idea is that it's, your best choice is to marry a man and to have his children. That is it. That is the best thing that can happen to you. And um, maybe it's the only thing that can happen to you. Certainly if uh, the narrator of the book, Caroline, is a former Olympic athlete. And if you train hard enough to become an Olympic athlete and you don't come from a lot of money, the chances of you being able to maintain your education are really, really, really low. <laughs> and for Caroline in the book, she does not, she's not able to maintain a formal education. And she is from uh, South Africa, which has a British style schooling system, which they they have a really rigorous uh, set of tests that begin when you're 11 years old that kind of weed you out from being able to get into any good universities if you're not from a family with resources. And uh, so she just kind of gives up on it. And that's also what happened to Princess Diana, although she came from a family with resources, but they didn't prioritize her education. So she went to a finishing school in Switzerland uh, and quote unquote graduated when she was 19. But um, she, as much as she would have liked to have gone to university, she wasn't able to. She'd never gone through the kind of tests, sort of branches of testing that would have allowed her to even apply to a British university. Um, so strangely, even though she was an aristocrat, she really was, um, she wasn't given the tools to make her way in the world at all. She, you know, the her first job out of finishing school, she worked as an aide at a kindergarten, which is a pretty menial job. And, um, yeah, yeah. So I, uh, I mean, you know, I'm not trying to disparage, um, aides at kindergartens, you know, in a, that I, I give a lot of credit, um, you know, but it's an um, incredibly difficult job. Yeah. And the main, and you know, you, you can see like her, her love of children was pretty apparent throughout her life. Of course. I mean, that was, that's the one job she was allowed to have, right. Was to be maternal, yeah. was to be maternal. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, it's difficult to um, be in a position where, you know, she wasn't, I guess my point is she wasn't even licensed enough to be a teacher at a kindergarten. She wasn't, she didn't even have enough certification right. to be in charge of the room. Um, yeah. and she'd been shipped off to another country to theoretically be educated. Right. Um, right. If that were me, I'd be pretty disappointed. Yeah. And Carol, so Caroline, she's young. Like when you say a retired um, Olympic athlete, we're not talking retirement in the sense that, you know, you've worked for decades at this and now you, your, jo your job, your yeah, job is it's not like yeah. retiring from the phone company. No. Yeah. Um, so really like uh, her, her body had kind of reached its limit for numerous reasons and she meets, yeah. Yeah, she meets um, is uh, Ferdinand. How do you sp pronounce the last name? It's Fieschi. That's what so, I thought. Yeah, Fieschi is. Um, it's interesting. It's uh, the Fieschi family. Um, the history of the of the country in the book um, is drawn from the history of of multiple miniature nations around Europe. Um, it, which was incredibly interesting to me to research Andorra, Monaco, Liechtenstein, and then particularly uh, a space called Livia, which is part of France that's technically in Spain. And um, I could have transposed that. It might be a part of Spain that's it's very close to Barcelona, but I think it's France and Spain. Um, and they uh, that's a castle that is 
in one country, but part of another. And their deal for the last thousand years with the surrounding peasants was, look, just let us be us. And if there's any trouble, you can come in here and we'll close the doors and we'll protect you. And that's how they maintain that peace. So um, a lot of these nations were formed of, of the tiniest states in Europe. Uh, many of them were formed during uh, a very large conflict that happened during the Middle Ages from 1100 to 1300. The Guelphs and the Ghibellines, which are two kind of boring Italian factions, or what we think of today as Italy, um, uh, it took over the entire region. And the Pope moved. There was a second Pope who went to Avignon. And um, during that time, uh, there were a couple, you know, you have these huge families, these kind of banking families. The Medicis are the most famous, of course, the Medicis of Florence. But the Fieschis are another family uh, that during this time could have theoretically sent someone across the sea that accidentally found a nation. And um, at the moment, there's actually a um, uh, there's an academic who studies oligarchs and corruption uh, with the last name Fieschi. Um, she. Uh, Whoa. <laughs> yeah, she's on faculty somewhere in Europe. I'm not sure where I saw her name on a panel for something at the American Academy in Rome. Um. But yeah, Ferdinand Fieschi is the man that uh, Caroline meets, and uh, he is the prince of a very small uh, nation on the sea called Lucomo. Uh, Lucomo is the name of an Etruscan king. Uh, there's a whole there's a whole fun historical fiction segment to this book where we learn about the founding of this nation, which I think, as you can tell, uh, to the listeners, Jessica and I are seeing each other on Zoom as we talk, and I love talking about this part. Inventing a fake country was the light of my life for like a year, and. Um, yeah, I uh, because I wanted it re you know, really desperately to feel incredibly magical. And the hard thing about places like Andorra and Monaco and Liechtenstein is that when you're there in person, they don't feel super magical <laughs> in person. There's a they're all kind of run down, you know, that places that um, uh, exist as kind of tax breaks, just the glamour kind of it, it rubs off really. It's a, it's a gilded glamour and it rubs off easily. So Andorra, for example, has two ski resorts that haven't been updated since the 1970s, which admittedly look amazing. They look yeah, like I they would be so to fun say, to ski. There's something, there's something kind of appealing about that in a weird way. Totally. I don't know. They like, look like, like they have they, no uh, what rules is it, like, at all. Time machine way. 100%. Like, oh. <laughs> Yes, and I love a slightly dangerous, incredibly aged European ski resort. I'm always down to do it. But the um, you have this kind of weird vintage majesty, and then you've got um, they have gas stations and car dealerships everywhere because the value added tax on automobiles really raises, makes it really expensive, and they have a tax free automobile culture. So everywhere you look, there's just these like weird, sad car dealerships. It's it's fascinating. But then horses walking around. They both have, everyone has a horse, but they also, horse is on every menu. It's one of those, like, strange contradictions. And uh, Monaco, of course, um, has, is just, it has a lot of really tacky elements to it. Um, Liechtenstein is incredibly small. San Marino is super charming. That's in Italy. That is this tiny little nation at the top of the hill with a, like, weirdly super progressive democratic government where they reelect everybody every six months. Uh, but it is incredibly wealthy and it's this stone castle I, that's yeah I, I'm getting when you say that I'm just sort of getting vibes my my um, we were just watching a clip from um, Monty Python and the Holy Grail where Arthur mm -hmm. walks into Dennis and his wife and they're explaining the commune that they live on uh -huh. and Arthur's like but I'm your king <laughs> right, of course. and they're like 
No. <laughs> well, actually, this is how we run our government. You know, we elect people every and I'm just like, oh, I wonder if that was, you know, like a mini nation as well. Now that I'm uh, but but back to the yeah, back to the book. Yeah. That, so, yeah. Um, yeah, it was really haunting. And you have this story. So first of all, I feel really silly in that I did not know that all of these small little pin I don't know like pin drop nations existed um but now I'm going to have to research more of them uh but you know she meets um Finn is his nickname at mm -hmm. sort of um, a formative time in her career when you know she's um experienced a trauma for her body and you know she's um it's um obviously not able to go on he he um also experienced a sort of trauma and, you know, she has this romantic view of who he is. Um, and then, of course, when they meet again, it's just a whirlwind romance. But um, she's really, I mean, you know, even though she has like a really good friend, she has her friend Zola, who um, she ran with, um, who's a lawyer. You know, she doesn't have a lot of opportunity in the sense that like she hasn't been educated, which you mentioned um, and, you know, the idea of marrying this prince is super appealing for so many reasons to her. Uh, but like the whole idea of her reproductive autonomy, oh, my gosh, it, there's like a really one really jarring scene um, where she's starting to kind of realize what's going on. And you're wondering whether or not she's I mean you you know that she's not going to step out of it because you're reading this book and you're just like okay you know eventually they get married uh but you're just like oh my god like is this an actual thing you know um <laughs> yeah 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 it is um you know that is fairy tales as you said earlier they we get sold this narrative all the time that's you meet you meet a you make yourself valuable to a valuable man. He marries you happy ever, happily ever after. And what's so fascinating to me is that that is the story ends that for women, that our sense of self, that our sense of purpose ends the moment that we belong to another person, the moment that we align ourselves with another person, that our, our person, our own personhood is gone. Um, and especially for women who have children, that you have value, you have value up until the moment you have produced your children. And then, you know, a place like a monarchy really doesn't need you anymore. In any kind of monarchy, which is a government that is a hereditary government, it requires women's bodies in order to stabilize its economy. It absolutely 100% has to produce heirs to the throne in a specific bloodline. That's what it does. Um, once you are, say, Princess Diana, and you've produced the heirs to the throne, you're not valuable to that monarchy anymore. You are not necessary. And that is such a uh, grotesque trade. And um, I'm astonished at the degrees to which we see this playing out, not only in uh, culture, like cultural products made for children, like things like Disney, but in the many, many, many cultural products made for female adults that we're continuing to tell each other this story in a way that is positive. Um, we're like, oh, you're a princess. You know, the, all, when I got married at the chorus of It's Your Day, as if it was my only day that I would ever have. I found it fascinating when you step back and look at the language. And I say this not, um, I'm not trying to be pejorative to my fellow woman and person. I have done the same thing. You know, this book is 
really an attempt to to look at this story with empathy and with care and to try to kind of dig away at some of the princess stuff that's in so much of our lives and to and to look at a princess story and say really what is this is this a good story or is this a ultimately incredibly tragic story yeah i mean i i have to say though when you talk about and again i mean you know i'm i I, i'm not trying to disparage disney here i grew up on it there are things i love more more recently I, i like the stories that don't involve necessarily like it has to be a romance you know uh which has been fun um you know your your typical cinderella stories but um when you look at like the actual Grimm's fairy tales, I kind of agree with what you just said. Like, is this like a happy story or is this incredibly tragic? Because so like even when um, those stories end, like supposedly when you belong to somebody, like the things that happen are so much more horrible than anything, you know, like, okay, there's like all of this trauma. Um, and uh yeah, so it really rang true when I was reading this book. Yeah, I um the fairy tales and folk tales, which get passed down from generation to generation, and are you know written down in things like Grimm's fairy tales and in different kinds of formats all over the world. Fairy tales generally tend to be about governments. They tend to be stories about power, and they're stories about places. We learn so much about. You know, the orphan was abandoned in this hut in the forest and the castle is over here and the spinning wheel is in this room. We really learn about the geography of places in kind of historic fairy tales. And then folk tales tend to be smaller. They, it's a bag of magic beans, a talking fish. These sort of There's some supernatural elements to it, but they tend to be more focused on a village or a town, these sort of smaller geographic regions and, um, are, are, excuse me, smaller metropolitan clusters but then maybe a bigger geographic region you'll travel to the sky you know you go down into a cave etc and um yeah the ones that involve women really tend (laughs) to be incredibly grotesque and terrifying and to have lost all of that along the way and to turn it turn it into the sort of elements of the story that are so tempting and beautiful crystal glass sun moon stars you know these words are so powerful they do so much to us. And that um, uh, that was part of why it took me five years to write this book. It's that they're, these, uh, they're really loaded. Everything comes really front loaded. Uh, it does a lot to a reader. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, so what, what were some of the elements um, that were really important to you when you were writing um, Caro's character and Finn's character? Well, uh, to start with, I'll start with him. Um, I wanted his uh, kind of pitch to her and and the sense of their romance to really be also the, it's sort of a romance with authoritarianism. You know, we've seen so much cynicism towards democracy uh, here at home. Obviously, we see a ton of it abroad. And um, uh, the baby I'm going to take care of you is really a trust in me. I know what's best kind of story. And uh, Caroline comes from, um, she comes from South Africa, which I've had the uh, the luck to visit many times over the past uh, 10 or 15 years. And that is a place that is really similar to the United States. It's an, it's an imperfect young democracy with a lot of sins on the table and a lot of shame and a lot of trauma and 
uh, how they choose to go forward is a, is a complicated thing. And for her, she doesn't quite know how to, the appeal of I'm going to take care of you, you don't have to think about it is stronger than, you know, stay at home in your messy country and try to make it better. And, um, and I think as a character, you know, I wanted him to be like genuinely charming and fun and interesting and also kind of represent these sort of uh, classic archetypes of masculinity. He's tall, he's strong, he's rich, he's handsome, um, but he's also funny and complicated. And uh, for Caroline, um, I, boy, I don't, I'm not sure how much of her I chose, I suppose. Uh, novels kind of come to you in a sense, and it's your job to make them available to the reader. You know, an idea comes to you and it feels so big and full. And the work of making it into a novel is really sitting there with that and parsing out what is effective for a reader and what is interesting to you personally. And sometimes those are the same and sometimes they're not. And um, I, uh, Caroline is really bodily and she's really, uh, she's kind of naive. And, uh, and I wanted us to feel really deep empathy for her. Um, when, when in the culture we talk about Meghan Markle or we talk about Kate Middleton or we talk even about female celebrities who, you know, all of these women have the bodies of elite athletes for starters. <laughs> they put so much energy into their appearance. It is crazy. Um, and the amount of criticism that they receive for, uh, you know, I don't know, slightly too much Botox or, I mean, there, there, there must be constant maintenance and it must feel terrible. Honestly, it must feel terrible to have to do that every day. It must feel really bad. And I wanted us to feel care for Caroline and to be with her along the way as she kind of eventually does have to make all of these choices about her appearance. Um, as opposed to the kind of, you know, you can be standing, I've said this before in other podcasts, but you, you can be standing in a room full of people who will all say, I'm a feminist, I'm a humanist, I'm an intellectual. And you say the words Meg Ryan's face, and there's a ripple through the room where everybody looks horrified. And I, that kind of interior misogyny that we all carry around, it, I'm trying, I want so badly to be free of it myself. I really do. And um, yeah, but it's, for, it's not it's not that easy. You it's know, not easy, it's not easy. And uh, when you talk also when you talk <clears throat> about, you know, like, I think we are sort of socialized as women to sort of cut each other down, um, yeah. which stinks, <clears throat> um, you know, yeah. but it is as um, it is as classic as the fairy tales. I mean, one of the original versions of Snow White, uh, you know, and Snow White is all about a woman cutting a young girl down. Uh, because yeah. she feels threatened by her. But I, I know um, one of the original, you know, versions of Snow White, like, I think like she actually is visited three times by the queen um, disguised. And one time I think she like strangles, tries to strangle her with her bodice strap. And another, hmm. time, you know, <laughs> another time yeah. she tries to like poison her with like a, a golden comb that's been di dipped in poison, like by giving her pretty things that yeah. are going to hurt her. Um, so yeah, I think uh, you're making some really good points, um, there. Uh, so another question I just really wanted to know, um, so Caroline is from South Africa. Why South Africa? Yeah. So I, uh, South Africa, like I said, has so many parallels to the United States. Um, 
They are an imperfect young democracy. They ended, obviously they ended apartheid um, sooner than we ended Jim Crow, but I think uh, we still have obviously real problems with racial injustice and, and disparity in this country. And it haunts us. The legacy of slavery haunts us all every day, all of the time. I was just overseas in the UK and um, uh, sitting at a table with a bunch of people for whom, uh, you know, the legacy of slavery is not something that they think about. And I've never felt more American than when I had to be like, you know, in the United States, that's not really how we talk about slavery because uh, this has touched all of our lives. This touched our grandparents' lives. It touches our friends' lives. This is something that that holds us together in this incredibly complex way. And um, I, uh, looking at that in the United States, as we see again and again and again, is so painful and so difficult for so many people. And I uh, was interested in finding a way to um, talk about that kind of sense of shame and that sense of responsibility without having to make it about the United States, because we are certainly not the only place that has that problem. And so Caroline is from a similar democracy that has had a lot of challenges. And her response to that is to walk away. Um, and mm -hmm. I, I mean, how many times have you heard people say, I'm moving to Canada, you know, whatever it is that they're going to give up on the project of the United States. But um, I think the United States actually has a lot of good to it. And I there's no, it, when I, every time I travel, there's so many things where I think, gosh, I'm so happy to be an American. I'm so lucky to be from this place that as much as, you know, we've become known for kind of anti-immigrant fervor over the last couple of years, like we are a nation of immigrants. That's who we all are. Everyone I know, one of our grandparents lived on a farm and didn't know how to read. You know, there is such uh, mobility in this country and there's such hope. And um, I just, I think, I think we get better and I think it's slow, but I think we do. And the key is to not give up. So um, I wanted, that is why Caroline is from South Africa is I think it's easier sometimes to think about the things that happen to us when we look at the ways that they happen to other people, because a lot of similar things happen all over the globe all the time. So, so. one more question is uh, the title. Can you tell us where it came from? Sure. The title is a line from the book. It is when she enters the palace and it sort of springs up around her and she is just absolutely breathless at how stunning it is. And she says, the force of such beauty was meant to destabilize a person. I was no exception. And so that is where the title comes from. And yeah, the question is who gets to be an exception to the rule? Who, who gets to give up on democracy? Who gets to choose to be a rich person? Can you still be a good person if you do all of those things? These are the kind of central questions of the, of the book, because I think we're sort of being tempted into that all the time as people. Yeah. Um, so are you going to now this took this took you five years to write? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, was it slowed down because the pandemic has taken up a substantial amount of that time? Uh, no, it was it's just slow. It just I kind of leapfrog in and out of stuff. Um, my la I started writing this in I had the idea for it in 2016 and I started really writing it in 2017. And, uh, but that's like, I started like truly writing it the week that my first book came out in 2017. And then um, I wrote another book that came out in 2019. And so I just kind of, it just was a slow process. Like I said, fairy tales are so, they're so loaded. It's so hard to write one. It's so, to make it feel fresh, to make it feel enjoyable, to make it feel like something that does something you haven't seen before um, was not a simple task. So it just, yeah, it just was slow going, but uh, 
I really, I loved writing it. I really enjoyed doing it. It was such a, it was such a pleasure to do. And I hope it's as much of a pleasure to read. Are you going to be working on anything else uh, soon? Yeah, I'm working on my next book uh, for Dutton for my same publisher. Uh, It is uh, titled, it's called Fields and Waves. And it is about a lonely uh, clairvoyant, a woman who can see and hear other people's thoughts. I don't know. That's like <laughs> you a nightmare. look so surprised. That sounds like yeah. such a nightmare. Like I don't. Yeah. I would not want that. It makes me think of like, what is it? Like there was that Twilight Zone episode with one of the Darrens from um, Bewitched, where like he can suddenly hear people's thoughts and just I don't know. When you hear yeah. about certain superpowers that you would want versus ones that you wouldn't want, and like for me, it's all about telekinesis because. You I mean, want it or you don't want it? Oh, I totally want telekinesis. I, I would like to be able to like move things with my mind. I don't want to get up when my coffee is on the other side of the room. If if I could, if that's, I could use that's your big goal is to move coffee from the from one side sure. of the room to the other. I have simple needs yeah. and books. Yeah, I like guess- if my book is on the other side of the room. But like, oh my God. you know, like- I know that being able to lie in your bed and have the pages of a hardcover book yep. turn magically and have the light turn off just the second that you think I want it to turn off. That truly. I would wish for that if I had a I, I never, like, it's like I never get <laughs> over, no matter how old I get, I never get over trying to use the force. Like, I know I can. Yeah. I know it's not real, <laughs> but I still want to try. Um, yeah. maybe, maybe this, maybe, you know, this time, but really, no. Uh, but, um, yeah, no, the idea of, like, try, like being in the same room as people and hearing their thoughts, and I just know that just sounds like a complete nightmare. Yeah. I mean, uh, yes, on the one hand, nightmare. On the other hand, uh, the positives of this as a, as a person who is, you know, I, I mean, obviously you are, you're a librarian, right? You're a librarian. You've done hundreds of episodes of this podcast. I think suffice to say that you are a curious person. You have curiosity about the world. Extremely. And so to, you know, to be able to sit in like an operating theater while a bunch of neurosurgeons open up a brain and listen to all the stuff that they think, all the things that they know, all the sense memory, that I can't that is I mean that's Wikipedia truly it's a metaphor for the internet like there's so much about being connected to each other all the time on the internet that brings such deep joy to my life um Wikipedia being truly like my number one favorite thing on the planet and um second only to being in a real library where you can I was just at the Bodleian in Oxford and I was I had access to the special collections and I was just calling anything up that I wanted and I it felt like witchcraft and I did call up books that's awesome spells from the 1700s, 1600s, cool. and they were amazing. That's amazing. The, um, it was amazing. It was so cool to look <laughs> at. And that, you know, as a person, like being able to be connected to different, t- like to hold a book that's from across time, you know, I'm sure yeah. you had this experience and you just yeah. feel, or to be standing in ruins, to be yeah. in a physical oh, totally, that's from a different time. You just feel you're like, oh yeah, time is the fourth dimension and I'm the master of it. You know, there's so <laughs> like human connection is so positive in so many ways and, and gives us so many gifts. And then it also, obviously, um, the other kind of dark side of this, it would be the kind of real challenge of hearing other people's insecurities all the time, which would be really sad. Oh yeah. So yeah. Uh, yeah. Cool. I've been working on this since like July of 2020 um, oh, and right. I've really been enjoying it, but it's a different, it's a, it's, it's a different all of my books are a little bit different uh, well from each other. they are um and i'm looking forward to reading that one so hopefully you'll come back and talk about it when it's available i would absolutely love to it'll be a couple of years but 100 consider me consider me a forever friend of the syosset public library 
How exciting. <laughs> okay, so <laughs> once again, this was Jessica with Syosset Libraries Turn the Page podcast. Check out The Force of Such Beauty at your library, at your bookstore, uh, wherever. Um, I think it's a really good one. Um, our guest today was Barbara Borland. And we are going to close this chapter of Turn the Page. It's time to close this chapter of Turn the Page. Join us for the next episode. Thank you.